Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we're going to go over the Come Follow Me lesson for April 20th through 26, 2020. This is covering Mosiah chapters 4 through 6. And now, let's bring out the star of the show, the scriptures. I'm so excited to Hooray! have you here. That's so great. And now let's consult the Scripturematics 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 16 minutes, 45 seconds. That's pretty short. Wow. For this week. You know, I've sneezed longer than that. (laughs) Well, we are allergic to most of the known universe. But back to the Scriptures. So let's jump into Mosiah. We're in Mosiah chapter 4. King Benjamin has just given his speech, right? He's talk to the people in front of the temple? Yeah, just quoted the angel back in chapter 3. And by the way, we didn't mention this last time, but if you haven't, I really recommend watching the King Benjamin's speech from the Book of Mormon videos that the church has put out. I really Mm. like that. That was a good one. There's a lot to absorb in that one. So chapter 4, we get the crowd reaction, as it were. Okay, so verses 2 and 3. And they viewed themselves in their own carnal state, even less than the dust of the earth. And they all cried aloud with one voice, saying, Oh, have mercy and apply the atoning blood of Christ that we may receive forgiveness for our sins and our hearts may be purified. For we believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who created heaven and earth and all things, who shall come down among the children of men. And it came to pass that after they had spoken these words, The Spirit of the Lord came upon them, and they were filled with joy, having received a remission of their sins and having peace of conscience because of the exceeding faith which they had in Jesus Christ who should come, according to the words which King Benjamin had spoken unto them. Now, a couple of things here. One, the phrase, less than the dust of the earth, that reminds me of, we're going to talk about this later in the book of Helaman, Helaman chapter 12, verses 7 through 8, kind of expounds on that a little bit. Oh, how great is the nothingness of the children of men. Yea, even they are less than the dust of the earth. You know, say familiar phrase. But then why are they less than the dust of the earth? Next verse. For behold, the dust of the earth moveth hither and thither to the dividing asunder at the command of our great everlasting God. In other words, the reason we're less than the dust of the earth is that the dust of the earth obeys the Father. Uh, We do not always. Now, to that point, the dust of the earth isn't going to become like the Father. True. There's a process here, but uh, the intention, as I read it, is to recognize that when we start to get full of ourselves and think that we are above the Master, then we have a problem. We need to be like the dust of the earth, completely obedient. Or as the angel said in verse 19 of the last chapter, uh, we need to become as little children or whatever analogy they used to point out that stop thinking so much of yourself and recognize Mm. who the Lord is. Well, and I hope it isn't lost on any of you that this message is coming from a king. And traditionally, the king is really the last person to talk about being humble. <laughs> and so, I mean, this is a this says a lot about yeah. King Benjamin and his character. You know, we're going to be able to see this in contrast to other kings later. But how amazing! As a matter of fact, if we recount what we talked about last time, while this speech is going on, we have in the land of Nephi to the south, they have just dealt with the consequences of a non-righteous king, a wicked king, a selfish king, the opposite of what King Benjamin is. So it is amazing to hear that from the highest official in the land. Absolutely. Well, there's one odd thing that I wanted to point out in these verses, and this is something that I've never quite, for my own self, I've never been able to satisfactorily reconcile. In verse 2, it says, and they all cried aloud with one voice. Now, there's a large group of people here. So were they all speaking in unison or were they all saying the same thing? And if you've ever heard a crowd try to say or sing the same thing at once, it doesn't work. And 
You know, so I wonder why that is. The Book of Mormon video had an interesting concept, certainly. They kind of took the approach of, well, yes, they all shouted uh, essentially at the same time. And it was, you know, there was a lot of noise and some said one phrase and some said another. And that could certainly be. I wonder, though, the other thing that I've thought about is that perhaps they had a spokesperson, you know, someone who would speak for the group or maybe, you know, subdivisions of groups. The thing that's odd about that, though, is that in the third verse, you get the phrase, and it came to pass that after they had spoken these words. So that, again, implies that everyone spoke. I'm not ruling out the possibility that perhaps there was a spiritual manifestation so great that they did, in fact, speak in unison. I think that's less likely, but it's still something that I wonder about. Yeah, it's curious, especially if you're trying to picture the story as you as you go. You know, we'll find out in chapter five that King Benjamin sends people out to find out how the people are feeling about the message. Uh, it doesn't indicate that they did that there, but uh, maybe that's something else to consider as well, that they came back with a report that said, hey, here's what the people are thinking. Well, and let's not lose sight of the main message here. The people were, had obviously been struck in their hearts by the Spirit, by the, through the words that King Benjamin had given to them and had recognized their need for humility and redemption. And while we talked about being less than the dust of the earth, let's not lose sight again of our importance to the Father. Absolutely not. We just need to recognize as his children where we are. There's a wonderful quote by Elder Holland that has been quoted and requoted, but I love it. When we think about ourselves, and sometimes we get discouraged the choices we've made or things that have taken us away from the Father, he says, however late you think you are, however many chances you think you have missed, however many mistakes you feel you have made or talents you think you don't have, or however far from home and family and God you feel, that you've traveled, I testify that you have not traveled beyond the reach of divine love. It is not possible for you to sink lower than the infinite light of Christ's atonement shines. That is a great quote. And that's from uh, April 2012 General Conference. From the Institute Manual, we have this quote from President Boyd K. Packer about uh, persevering until you've obtained forgiveness. He says, quote, that great morning of forgiveness may not come at once. Do not give up if at first you fail. Often the most difficult part of repentance is to forgive yourself. Discouragement is part of that test. Do not give up. That brilliant morning will come. Then the peace of God which passeth understanding comes into your life once again. Then you, like him, will remember your sins no more. How will you know? You will know. End quote. <laughs> that's uh, oh, General that's Conference, wonderful. October 1995. Yeah, it's a great one. That's great. It's fascinating to know how they got to this point of seeing themselves like this, of feeling that. And, of course, reading back over those words from last week can help us to connect those ideas. Well, and we focused a lot of energy on explaining uh, how this shows the character of King Benjamin. But I think it speaks very highly of the people as well. I mean, oh, we talked before in previous episodes about how you can bring the spirit to anyone. But if they are not listening, if they have not humbled themselves to receive that spirit, it does them no good. These people had obviously done that. You know what I loved seeing in the video was that as soon as he took a break after chapter three, they immediately turned to each other and started acting on the very things that he was talking about. And I think one reason that I love that is I think of myself at conference. When the Lord speaks to me at general conference, how quickly do I respond? Or do I think, oh, I should really do something and then forget, which frequently happens. I love that they acted immediately on that. Mm. And what a blessing. That kind of plays into President Nelson's admonition for this general conference to hear him, mm -hmm. uh, not only to hear, but to act upon uh, what you've heard. Now, great. Well, that's and that's the admonition point. in verse four, that yeah. you may hear and understand the remainder of my words. So mm. let's go on to what else he's going to say. Well, later on in the chapter, we have in verse nine, a very bold statement 
for the people. Believe in God. Believe that he is and that he created all things, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that he has all wisdom and all power, both in heaven and in earth. Believe that man doth not comprehend all the things which the Lord can comprehend. And again, believe that ye must repent of your sins and forsake them, and humble yourselves before God, and ask in sincerity of heart that he would forgive you. And now, if you believe all these things, see that ye do them. Just as we were talking about, right? You know, they just repented in verses 2 and 3 and received the forgiveness of their sins. And now, one of the, almost immediately, he's telling them again. And it, you know, in verse 4, he wanted them to hear and understand the remainder of his words. But at the end of verse 10 there, he tells them that they need to believe and repent and humble yourselves. Well, they just did all of that. So why would he say it Again. Not a one-time thing, is it? Well, yeah, that's what I was thinking. You felt it now. Don't forget this because you're going to need to do this again and again and again, which is, as you captivated it there at the end of the verse 10, if you believe these things because I see that you are acting on them, keep acting on them. Make sure Mm -hmm. that you do them. You know, there was one other thing that I... It just struck me as interesting as I read it this time around. In verse 9, that first statement, believe in God, believe that he is. Now, this is probably stretching a little bit. So perhaps this is just John doing his own thing. But it just strikes me as interesting that the name Jehovah is considered by most people that that word means I am. Or perhaps even, I am, I was, I am to be. And it just strikes me as interesting that he says, believe in God, believe that he is. I I wonder if that's maybe even an allusion to the name Jehovah. Interesting notion. So let's go on. Verse 11. And again, I say unto you, as I have said before, that as ye have come to the knowledge of the glory of God, Or if ye have known his goodness and have tasted of his love and have received a remission of your sins, which causeth such exceedingly great joy in your souls, even so I would that ye should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness and his goodness and longsuffering toward you, unworthy creatures, and humble yourselves even in the depths of humility, calling on the name of the Lord daily and standing steadfastly in the faith of that which is to come, which was spoken by the mouth of the angel. For behold, I say unto you that if ye do this, ye shall always rejoice and be filled with the love of God and always retain a remission of your sins. And ye shall grow in the knowledge of the glory of him that created you or in the knowledge of that which is just and true. Isn't that an amazing comparison to have unworthy creatures... Mm-hmm. and you'll be filled, you know, you'll rejoice and be filled with the love of God. It doesn't seem to make, it does definitely doesn't make sense to the natural man to mm-hmm. feel that way about yourself in comparison to God. Again, this is a comparison. We're not just supposed to feel bad because we're supposed to feel bad. We need to understand our place in relationship to God. And if we do, it's going to be wonderful. There's kind of an if-then connection there, that if we do what it says in verse 11, then we will have the results in verse 12. And those are really good promises or principles to look for as you're in the scriptures. If you can find and if you do this, then here are the results of that, either for good or for bad. Well, and I feel compelled to point out that there have been several leaders, uh, I'm thinking particularly of President Nelson, who has spoken about joy and that joy is not about what's going on around you, but it's the fact that you've tuned in to Christ and his plan. Mm. Uh, That's where the joy comes from. And so that promise is not saying your life will always be great and you won't have any pain or trials or anything, because, you know, we signed up for this. It was in the brochure. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it was. But that doesn't mean that we still can't experience joy. Yeah. 
You know, Elder Maxwell, there's a quote from the Institute Manual, Elder Neil A. Maxwell gave an interesting statement in regards to the idea of retaining a remission of your sins. Quote, much emphasis was given by King Benjamin to retaining a remission of our sins. We do not ponder that concept very much in the church. We ought to think of it a lot more. Retention clearly depends on the regularity of our repentance. In the church, we worry, and should, over the retention of our new members. But the retention of our remissions is cause for even deeper concern, end quote. That's from an article called King Benjamin's Speech That You May Learn Wisdom. It's kind of a part of a collection. It's of a articles. collection, yeah. Yeah. So as we look forward, now we're going to hear or examine even more. Okay, so they had the experience. They got the remission of sins. Then in uh, 9 to 9 and 10, he encourages them to keep that up. Don't fall behind. Uh, 11 and 12 were given in if then. What's it going to look like for you? What do you need to do in order to retain a remission of your sins? Then in 13, we begin to see what people look like who have received a remission of their sins. And there's an article written by Kenneth W. Anderson. Uh, We'll put a link in the description. It's called What Parents Should Teach Their Children from the Book of Mosiah. And he made a neat comparison in chapter 4. As we look at those traits, we can also examine the opposite of those traits. He compares it to what the man of Christ is, or by man of Christ, he means a friend to God. And what a great thing to identify with your kids, that to be a man of Christ is to be a friend or a woman of Christ is to be a friend of God. And the natural man who is an enemy to God if he doesn't yield to the enticings of the Spirit. So, as we take a look in 13, uh, we see it right away. If you are a man of Christ or a friend to God, you will not have a mind to injure one another. Okay, well, what's the opposite there then? Someone who's an enemy to God cares more about himself than others and doesn't care whether he injures others or not. But the man of God is one who lives peaceably. So let's take a look at some of the other traits in here. Let's get to verse 14. And ye will not suffer your children that they go hungry or naked. All right, well, there's another trait. A friend of God is someone who will not suffer children to go hungry or naked. Neither will you suffer that they transgress the laws of God and fight and quarrel one with another and serve the devil. Now, please understand the context. We're not saying that if your children fight and quarrel with one another, then therefore you, the parent, are not a friend to God. But it says neither will they suffer that they should. In other words, you want to work on that. Those who will just let kids do whatever or let people fight and quarrel with one another and serve the devil and so forth, those are enemies to God. Those aren't people that have gone through this redemption process, this remission of their sins. And serve the devil who's the master of sin, who is the evil spirit which uh, hath been spoken of by our fathers, he being an enemy to all righteousness. Again in 15, but ye will teach them, your children, to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. Why? Because that's what you will be doing. A friend of God is one who will walk in the ways of truth and soberness. You will teach them to love one another, to serve one another. These are all traits of those who follow Christ. 16, you will succor those that stand in need of your succor. Ye will administer of your substance unto him that standeth in need, and ye will not suffer that the beggar putteth up his petition unto you in vain and turn him out to perish. You know, I wanted to share a couple of quotes, one from the Gospel Doctrine Manual. Both of these quotes have to do with the importance of teaching your children. From the Gospel Doctrine Manual, President Gordon B. Hinckley said, quote, The health of any society, the happiness of its people, their prosperity and their peace all find their roots in the teaching of children by fathers and mothers, end quote. 
Amen. That's from General Conference, uh, October 1993. But also from President Nelson, well, this was Elder Nelson at the time, uh, in October 2001 General Conference. Now, those of you who are seeing this quote, I broke the paragraph apart into uh, bullet points. So you can take a look at each of the points he's making with the scriptures associated with them. And those of you listening, it won't make any difference. <laughs> so we'll go on. Quote, Scriptures direct parents to teach faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism, and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Parents are to teach the plan of salvation and the importance of living in complete accord with the commandments of God. Otherwise, their children will surely suffer in ignorance of God's redeeming and liberating law. Parents should also teach by example how to consecrate their lives using their time, talents, tithing, and substance to establish the church and kingdom of God upon the earth. Living in that manner will literally bless their posterity, end quote. So then we have a wonderful speech. This goes through the end of the chapter, and we've labeled it. Yes. I'm going to read the biggest chunk of it just because, well... I can't do any better than just tell you what he said. It's just so good. It is. Verse 17. Perhaps thou shalt say, the man has brought upon himself his misery. So this is, if you remember from verse 16, he's talking about the, uh, the beggar asking for substance from you. The man has brought upon himself his misery. Therefore, I will stay my hand and will not give unto him of my food, nor impart unto him of my substance that he may not suffer, for his punishments are just. But I say unto you, O man, whosoever doeth this, the same hath great cause to repent. And except he repenteth of that which he hath done, he perisheth forever, and hath no interest in the kingdom of God. For behold, are we not all beggars? Do we not all depend on the same being, even God, for all the substance which we have, for both food and raiment, and for gold and for silver, and for all the riches we have of every kind. And behold, even at this time ye have been calling on his name, and begging for a remission of your sins. And has he suffered that ye have begged in vain? Nay, he has poured out his Spirit upon you, and has caused that your hearts should be filled with joy, and has caused that your mouths should be stopped, that ye could not find utterance, so exceedingly great was your joy." And now, if God, who has created you, on whom you are dependent for your lives, and for all that ye have and are, doth grant unto you whatsoever ye ask that is right, in faith, believing that ye shall receive, oh then, how ye ought to impart of the substance that ye have one to another. And if ye judge the man who putteth up his petition to you for your substance that he perish not, and condemn him, how much more just will be your condemnation for withholding your substance, which does not belong to you, but to God, to whom also your life belongeth, and ye put up no petition, nor repent of the thing which thou hast done? I say unto you, Woe be unto that man, for his substance shall perish with him. And now I say these things unto those who are rich as pertaining to the things of this world, and again, I say unto the poor, ye who have not, and yet sufficient, that ye remain from day to day. I mean all you who deny the beggar because ye have not. I would that ye say in your hearts that I give not because I have not. But if I had, I would give. And now if ye say this in your hearts, ye remain guiltless. Otherwise, ye are condemned. And your condemnation is just, for ye covet that which ye have not received. There's a great quote to go along with this that I found in the Institute Manual from President Gordon B. Hinckley. This is from April 1990 General Conference. Quote, Let us be more merciful. Let us get the arrogance out of our lives, the conceit, the egotism. Let us be more compassionate, gentler, filled with forbearance and patience, and a greater measure of respect one for another. 
In so doing, our very example will cause others to be more merciful, and we shall have greater claim upon the mercy of God, who, in his love, will be generous toward us. For behold, are we not all beggars? So spoke King Benjamin, to which I add that the power of the Master is certain, and his word is sure. He will keep his promise toward those who are compassionate. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I am confident that a time will come for each of us when, whether because of sickness or infirmity, of poverty or distress, of oppressive measures against us by man or nature, we shall wish for mercy. And if, through our lives, we have granted mercy to others, we shall obtain it for ourselves. End quote. I love that. It's such a powerful message from King Benjamin. And unfortunately, something that the editors decided to leave out of the Book of Mormon video. I was disappointed with that. But, well, uh, I, you know, they, they I saw it was make their choices. 18 minutes long and I thought, boy, all right. I thought they were going to do maybe the whole speech. But uh, yeah, I, you know, when you have something that you love like this, you want to see it immortalized in that way. Yeah. But, you know, they have to do what they have to do. I get it. That's fine. <laughs> Back to King Benjamin. OK, uh, let's skip over to uh, verse 27 and see that all these things are done in wisdom and order, for it is not requisite that a man should run faster than he has strength. And again, it is expedient that he should be diligent, that thereby he might win the prize. Therefore, all things must be done in order. And by the way, there's a couple of more features here of the man of God. You know, 26, imparting of your substance. We talked about that. But also caring for, feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the sick. And But in 27, maybe we don't think about this, but the man who is, or the person who is aligned with Christ, who is a friend to God, they will do things in wisdom and order. They won't run faster than they have strength. They do things in an orderly fashion. You know, my wife had pointed out one of the things that she really loves about the mortal life of Jesus Christ is that there are times where he sleeps, hmm. you know, there's, it, it, he's not just, you know, 24 seven, always serving everybody. He is taking care of himself as well. Yeah. Uh, he is operating in wisdom and order from the Institute manual. We have a quote from elder Neil A. Maxwell, again, uh, talking about this very notion quote, when we run faster than we are able, we get both inefficient and tired. I have on my office wall a wise and useful reminder by Anne Morrow Lindbergh concerning one of the realities of life. She wrote, My life cannot implement in action the demands of all the people to whom my heart responds. That's good counsel for us all. Not as an excuse to forego duty, but as a sage point about pace and the need for quality in relationships, end quote. Uh, that's from his book, Deposition of a Disciple. Nice. So let's finish up then. Chapter 4, the last two verses, this is verse 29. And finally, I cannot tell you all the things whereby ye may commit sin, for there are divers ways and means, even so many that I cannot number them. Does that not remind you of the Doctrine and Covenants scripture, uh, it is not meet that you should be commanded in all things? Mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to see a list of no. all the ways that we could. <laughs> so this is that summary is I just fine. I think it would be too, too big of a temptation for me to say, oh, but I could do something that's not on this list. <laughs> that's too much. But verse 30, but this much I can tell you, that if you do not watch yourselves, and your thoughts, and your words, and your deeds, and observe the commandments of God, and continue in the faith of what ye have heard concerning the coming of our Lord, even unto the end of your lives, ye must perish. And now, O man, remember, and perish not. So, do you think you could summarize that by saying, choose life? Choose life indeed. <laughs> Don't perish. You know, there's another great one right in 30 there. The man of God, the person who is a friend to God, watches themselves and their thoughts and their words and their deeds and keeps the commandments. 
Yeah. He's Wonderful. laid it out very clearly. Uh, now, in the Come Follow Me manual, there's a recommendation for a couple of general conference talks. I'm not going to read them here, but you might want to take some time with yourself or with your family to go over these. From the April 2016 general conference, David A. Bendar, Always Retain a Remission of Your Sins, and October 2009, Dale G. Renlin, Preserving the Heart's Mighty Change. Some good stuff. So now we're going on to chapter five. Here again, we got another crowd reaction, right? Verse two. Mm-hmm. And they all cried with one voice. There again, I don't know what that means. But this is an example, though, what we talked about. Verse one, he sent people out desiring to know how the people are responding to this message. And well, this again, is what's brought back. It begs the question, did everybody say these th- phrases or did I some think say did. one and some say another? I, nope. I don't know. I, say, I think they said it. I think this is the opposite of the Ramayumptum. <laughs> they all spiritually were motivated to say this very thing. I don't know. Get, For those of you going. not familiar with the Ramayumptum, wait a few weeks. We'll yeah, get there. Well, yeah. <laughs> Verse two. And they all cried with one voice saying, Yea, we believe all the words which thou hast spoken unto us, and also we know of their surety and truth because of the Spirit of the Lord Omnipotent, which has wrought a mighty change in us, or in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. And we ourselves also through the infinite goodness of God and the manifestations of his Spirit have great views of that which is to come, and were it expedient We could prophesy of all things. And that particular verse, by the way, that's something that makes me wonder if there was just a particularly powerful manifestation of the Spirit. They had obviously received enough to have the gift of prophecy and, you know, feeling that they could, were it expedient, they could prophesy of all things. Going on, verse 4, And it is the faith which we have had on the things which our King has spoken unto us that has brought us to this great knowledge whereby we do rejoice with such exceedingly great joy. And we are willing to enter into a covenant with our God to do his will and to be obedient to his commandments in all things that he should command us, all the remainder of our days, that we may not bring upon ourselves a never-ending torment, as has been spoken by the angel, that we may not drink out of the cup of the wrath of God. I absolutely love this line, I think I first really discovered it for myself on my mission in verse 2. We all have our favorite sins, the sins we don't want to let go of, the sins that we hold on to. And we get frustrated. So I get frustrated when we're trying to wrestle with them. And sometimes that's just it. We wrestle with the thing rather than trying to change our heart. Uh, You know, there's a moment in the, uh, there was a I don't know what to call it, a documentary, a a reality show. All the missionaries have to watch it. It's called The District. And in The District, there is a fellow who is not getting the answers that he wants about tattoos. He's an investigator. And the missionaries don't seem to have the right answer for him. He's not finding the right answer. And yet he can't seem to let go of this notion of why are tattoos an issue. One day he was at church. And all of a sudden, he thought to himself, why is this even an issue for me? It doesn't even, it makes no difference. And his, what had happened was his heart had changed and it became a non-issue. Here we've got the same kind of thing. A, A mighty change has happened in their hearts. And therefore, they have no more disposition to do evil, but to do good continually. Sometimes the thing that we're wrestling with, we just need to maybe not concentrate on that thing, but concentrate on building up the positive in our life, of building up our goodness, of softening our heart. And then all of a sudden, that thing we were wrestling with isn't even tempting anymore because we have a different heart. Now, that isn't always a final anything, but it can be. And we can just keep coming back to this, making sure our hearts are soft. And that way, I guess it can be frustrating to work on those specific sins. Let's spend more time getting our hearts in the right place. 
I think that's a wonderful testimony in verse 2. To retain a remission of our sins, as it were. Yeah. You know, from the Come Follow Me manual, there's a great quote to that end with uh, President Russell and Nelson. This is from October 2013 General Conference. Quote, we can change our behavior. Our very desires can change. True change, permanent change, can come only through the healing, cleansing, and enabling power of the atonement of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a gospel of change, end quote. I love it. Great stuff. You know, the neat vision of change is that it's not about becoming a different person per se. It's about getting rid of all the baggage so that we can be our best self. It's getting rid of the stuff true. we don't want connected to us anyway. Very Yes, true. all right, back to five. Back to chapter five. Let's skip to verse seven here. And now because of the covenant which ye have made, ye shall be called the children of Christ, his sons and his daughters. For behold, this day he hath spiritually begotten you. For ye say that your hearts are changed through faith on his name. Therefore, ye are born of him and have become his sons and his daughters. And under this head, ye are made free. And there is no other head whereby ye can be made free. There is no other name given whereby salvation cometh. Therefore, I would that ye should take upon you the name of Christ, all you that have entered into the covenant with God, that ye should be obedient unto the end of your lives. And it shall come to pass that whosoever doeth this shall be found at the right hand of God, for he shall know the name by which he is called, for he shall be called by the name of Christ. And now it shall come to pass that whosoever shall not take upon him the name of Christ must be called by some other name. Therefore he findeth himself on the left hand of God. There's a couple of thoughts that I wanted to leave uh, in regards to this. One of them comes from the Gospel Doctrine Manual from the teachings of the Prophet Joseph Smith. Quote, In obedience there is joy and peace unspotted, unalloyed. And as God has designed our happiness, he never has, he never will, institute an ordinance or give a commandment to his people that is not calculated in its nature to promote that happiness, end quote. That reminds me several times of some instances where I've had conversations with my children when I've asked them to do something that they didn't want to do. The discussion has typically ended with me saying, look, I'm not telling you this to make your life miserable. I'm trying to help you. Uh, and that's essentially what Joseph Smith is saying about... Uh, our, our Father in Heaven. Yeah. From the Institute Manual, we have a great quote from Elder Dallin H. Oaks, then Elder, from the April 1985 General Conference. Quote, We see that we take upon us the name of Christ when we are baptized in his name, when we belong to his church and profess our belief in him, and when we do the work of his kingdom. There are other meanings as well deeper meanings that the more mature members of the church should understand and ponder as he or she partakes of the sacrament. It is significant that when we partake of the sacrament, we do not witness that we take upon us the name of Jesus Christ. We witness that we are willing to do so. The fact that we only witness to our willingness suggests that something else must happen before we actually take that sacred name upon us in the most important sense. Willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ can therefore be understood as willingness to take upon us the authority of Jesus Christ. According to this meaning, by partaking of the sacrament, we witness our willingness to participate in the sacred ordinances of the temple and to receive the highest blessings available through the name and by the authority of the Savior when he chooses to confer them upon us. Our willingness to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ affirms our commitment to do all that we can to be counted among those whom he will choose to stand at his right hand and be called by his name at the last day. In this sacred sense, our witness that we are willing to take upon us the name of Jesus Christ 
constitutes our declaration of candidacy for exaltation in the celestial kingdom. Exaltation is eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God, end quote. I love that that is the pinnacle focus of King Benjamin's speech is he's bringing, first he's helping them understand the need for and then understand the process of, and then he brings them to this moment. You know, he said at the beginning that he was going to do two main things. He was going to tell them who was going to be the next king. He did that last week when we talked. And then he was going to bring them under a new name. We remember that these people are an absolute potpourri of peoples. And I thought that was something in the video they did very well, was as you look out at the audience, you see people from all kinds of ethnic backgrounds. And why not? We have no idea who the Mulekites were except for one person, Mulek. And so the Nephites at this point have joined with, and we're not really sure who the Nephites are even at this point, it's 450 years later, they join with the uh, people of Zarahemla, no idea who they are as far as you know, what they look like, their cultural sense. And we bring them all together into this great mass of people who have all these different identities. And King Benjamin says, no, I need you under one identity, under one name. And that's what he's clarifying here. Do you mind if I go on with verse 11? Sure, please. Take it to the end. And I would that ye should remember also that this is the name that I said I should give unto you that never should be blotted out except it be through transgression. Therefore take heed that ye do not transgress, that the name be not blotted out of your hearts. I say unto you, I would that ye should remember to retain the name written always in your hearts that ye are not found on the left hand of God, but that ye hear and know the voice by which ye shall be called, and also the name which he shall call you. For how knoweth a man the master whom he has not served, and who is a stranger unto him, and is far from the thoughts and intents of his heart? And again, doth a man take an ass which belongeth to his neighbor and keep him? I say unto you, Nay. He will not even suffer that he shall feed among his flocks, but will drive him away and cast him out. I say unto you, that even so shall it be among you, if ye know not the name by which ye are called. Therefore, I would that ye should be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in good works, that Christ, the Lord God omnipotent, may seal you his that you may be brought to heaven, that ye may have everlasting salvation and eternal life through the wisdom and power and justice and mercy of him who created all things in heaven and in earth, who is God above all. Amen. Amen, indeed. What a way to end a speech. Really? Very what a way so. to end a testimony. What a great general conference to be at. Indeed. Remarkable. That had to have been exceptional. Yeah. I love those words. So now, chapter 6. Chapter 6 is a fairly short chapter, and it's kind of a bridge between the King Benjamin story and the reign of Mosiah. Yeah, what should but we know about it? there are a couple it? of things that we want to call out here in the first couple of verses. And now King Benjamin thought it was expedient after having finished speaking to the people that he should take the names of all those who had entered into a covenant with God to keep his commandments. And it came to pass that there was not one soul except it were little children, but who had entered into the covenant and had taken upon them the name of Christ. Uh, this is a record-keeping thing. Well, but how remarkable that, because yes, it is. But the other part of it that I was so impressed by is nobody didn't. Nobody didn't. Is that a thing? Everyone. <laughs> that's, a, that's a double negative. Everyone entered into a covenant. That's amazing. What an incredible piece of missionary work. And what a unity. Again, all of these different groups were perfectly unified together in their desire, their willingness 
to be called under the name of Christ. I don't want to diminish the idea of record keeping. I mean, this is something that we carry on today. When we participate in ordinances, when we make covenants, these are recorded. Our names are recorded that we have made these covenants, just as King Benjamin is doing here. Well, and for what reasons, we even get a clue from that by seeing what Moroni said about it at the end of the Book of Mormon. He says that their names were taken, that they might be nourished by the good word of God. So that's here in Moroni 6, in verse 4, it says that their names were taken. They might be remembered and nourished by the good word of God to keep them in the right way, to keep them continually watchful unto prayer, relying alone upon the merits of Christ, who is the author and finisher of their faith. That ties in really well. I think that's a great thing to think about when we think about the record keeping. True. Very good. So in verse 3, And again it came to pass that when King Benjamin had made an end of all these things, and had consecrated his son Mosiah to be a ruler and a king over his people. So that was the first thing he said he was going to do, right? And he did it. Mm -hmm. And had given him all the charges concerning the kingdom, and also appointed priests to teach the people, that thereby they might hear and know the commandments of God, and to stir them up in remembrance of the oath which they had made. There we go. He dismissed the multitude, and they returned everyone according to their families, to their own houses. You know, there's a favorite quote of mine from President Spencer W. Kimball that this reminds me of. He says, quote, When you look in the dictionary for the most important word, do you know what it is? It could be remember. Because all of us have made covenants. Our greatest need is to remember That is why everyone goes to sacrament meeting every Sabbath day, to take the sacrament and listen to the priests pray that we may always remember him and keep his commandments which he has given us. Remember is the word, end quote. That's from a BYU address in June of 1968. Nice. The importance of remembering. So, we just have a few more verses, and one of the things that I wanted to point out here is in verse 4, we have another time stamp. Well, and we also have an age stamp, which is, uh, I think, the first time we rarely get those. We get them occasionally, but it's interesting to wonder, well, okay, how old is somebody when they take the records, when they take over or whatever? And maybe it's different for everybody, but here we've got it. 30 years of age when Mosiah began to reign in his father's stead. So he's 30 years old, and this is 476 years since Lehi departed from Jerusalem. So this is approximately 124 B.C. So now we're getting really close. We're just a little over a century away from the coming of Christ. So I wanted to go over just a couple of ideas, thoughts that are going on in the old world at this time. Now, when we left off before, Alexander the Great had already come in as the bigger fish and taken over everything. But now his conquests have split between Ptolemy and Seleucus. Israel goes back and forth, but eventually it's incorporated as part of the Seleucid Empire. We have the Maccabean Revolt. Judas Maccabeus, or Judah Maccabee, depending on which language you want to pronounce his name. This is what figures in, certainly, Hanukkah and Mm -hmm. that uh, whole story. You have the Seleucid ruler, uh, Antiochus IV, who said, yeah, I know we've said you can believe what you want, but everybody's going to worship the Greek gods. So you got to do that. They were very Uh, popular. No, no, he was not. And No, uh, I, I meant the Greek the, gods were very popular. Oh, they were. The Greek yeah. gods were popular. Very the trendy. They were it, as it were. But to beat down his point further, Antiochus even has pigs sacrificed in the temple. Uh, this time it's the, the temple of Zerubbabel, the temple that Ezra and Nehemiah were involved with coordinating the building of. Yeah. Yeah. Big insult to the Jews. Maccabees revolted and gained some sense of independence for a little while of just the Judah area. 
until the biggest fish comes, Rome. Uh, but that won't happen until 63. But anyway, uh, this is also the time period when we first see the Essenes. These are a Jewish sect, as it were, a Jewish denomination that had their own kind of set of beliefs. The reason that we know anything about them is that they are responsible for having kept the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were, of course, found much more recently. And then we talked about the Greek Septuagint. This is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This would have That's been very finished important. right around this time. Yes, would have just been finished. So there you go. Great. Little history lesson. Great. Well, the short chapter ends by setting up what's going to become a very big story. Going forward, we're going to have a split in the narrative. We talked last week about how there's two kingdoms going on simultaneously of Nephites. We've got the Mosiah, King Benjamin, and now King Mosiah in the north. And we've got a Zenith, King Noah, and King Limhi happening in the south. And they're about to come together for the first time in a couple of generations with chapter seven. So, yeah. We've got the lead into chapter seven there, the last verse of chapter six. And King Mosiah did cause his people that they should till the earth. And he also himself did till the earth. Little side note there. Mosiah obviously respected and followed the example of his father, Benjamin, uh, very humbly. That thereby... He might not become burdensome to his people, that he might do according to that which his father had done in all things. And there was no contention among all his people for the space of three years. Yes. So now we're going to have to wait until next episode to find out what the contentions were. You know, when it comes to something that's going to disturb the peace, this is one of the nicer things that will disturb the peace as opposed well, to true. other things in the future. But That's true. Yeah, all right. So, But it is a contention nonetheless. Absolutely. So keep up on your reading and um, enjoy, sink your teeth into what we can learn from King Benjamin's speech and uh, prepare for the excitement starting in Chapter 7. And as you do, take some time to reread and study the talks that we just received at General Conference. Uh, receive them in the same way that we've received the writings of King Benjamin. These are writings for us today. And Fantastic. we'll talk to you next episode. See you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. <laughs>